Hello and welcome to the Think Anesthesia podcast in celebration of Veterinary Technician Week 2021. We are interviewing career veterinary technicians. For this episode, I am honored to introduce Miss Amy Newfield, uh, CVT, VTS, and ECC, and a Master's of Science in Management and Leadership. She currently serves as the Director of Veterinary Nursing Leadership at Veterinary Emergency Group. Formerly, she worked for Blue Pearl Veterinary Partners as Program Manager for Training and Team Development. She is the owner of the Veterinary Team Training Program and author of bestseller, Oops, I Became a Manager, Managing the Veterinary Hospital Team by Finding Unicorns. She is also, and this is particularly of great interest to me, a 20-year veteran and continuing to serve as a member of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services on the National Veterinary Response Team. So with that, thank you, Amy, for joining us. I'm excited to ask some questions of you about your experiences. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're really excited to hear more about some of your experiences as a career veterinary technician. You have quite a diverse background. I can see you even worked with some nonprofits early on. So really excited to hear particularly, what does being a career veterinary technician mean to you? Great question. So obviously it is, uh, you know, you have been in it for a substantial amount of time. As we know, this particular industry draws us in because we're passionate about the animals that we want to care for. And so the passion of this veterinary profession is always there. That's one of the big things that I always talk to people about when they say, I feel like I want to leave or, um, you know, I'm not sure if this is for if this is for me. And I say, what are you passionate about? And the passion is always the same. I just really want to help animals. I resonate with pets more than I resonate with people. I like pets better than I like people. Uh, I really love medicine and I really want to make this a career. But as we know, this is a very tough profession. And so to make it a true career, it's really about figuring out how can you keep that passion going and how can you sustain yourself in this career um, longer than the under five years for many individuals. But for me, I've always focused on the things and the reasons why I went into this profession, which is the pets and the medicine and those have always been the drivers of why I've stayed and why I've continued to make this a career for myself even when times are less than ideal. Yeah it definitely has its highs and lows and rewards and obviously uh, challenges that we have to overcome. So you have a diverse background in being a career technician both technically as well as into the leadership and management end of things and you specialized as a veterinary technician specialist in emergency and critical care i'm particularly interested if you feel that advanced credentialing contributed at all to some of your career moves into more leadership roles yeah, absolutely. I truly, um, it, it's a great path to go. And I think a lot of people aren't aware that you can become a veterinary technician specialist in general practice in clinical practice. And so I think a lot of people think you have to be in a specialty hospital. I have to work in one tiny department like dermatology or emergency medicine or internal medicine or cardiology. But what they don't realize is that general practice, that clinical practice track, it is very specialized. I often joke that I would not be able to do general practice anymore. It is outside of my comfort zone. I got 
a puppy about five years ago and had to look up the vaccine schedule and ask somebody like, how are we vaccinating these little critters? Because I had no idea. I don't remember the last time I did a dental prophy. So I do always advocate pursuing a VTS if that's something that you're interested in, and particularly if you think you're going to stay in this career for a long period of time. For me personally, um, I think as you are in this industry, again, the passion being that you love animals and you love medicine, you're going to find yourself passionate about certain aspects of this career. Uh, there are people who get really excited about radiology, get really excited about echocardiograms and things to do with the heart. And for me, when I was in general practice, I got really excited uh, whenever there was a trauma patient that I could help fix and send it back to its owner. That was some of the coolest stuff and still is the coolest stuff to this day. So I knew that I needed to gravitate to emergency medicine only because that's what really resonated with me. That's where I found my love and my passion. And then after I became a VTS, I think that, you know, yes, there's a lot of opportunities. You now have this wonderful network within your own academy uh, and you get to see what other people are doing. And through just sort of a lot of different careers and job opportunities, I found myself really wanting to focus on the individuals within the hospital, which if you had asked me when I started off this profession in the 90s, I would have said, oh, people annoy me. I just, I really, being in a team annoys me. I wish I could do this by myself. I, this, I wish veterinary medicine was a solo sport. Um, but then as I got to be in this profession longer, I really came 360 and realized, oh my gosh, the veterinary team is such an amazing experience and such another passion of mine that I really then found myself through, I think, having obtained my VTS in emergency critical care, wanting to educate, but then also wanting to just really find ways that people could realize that they could be in a sustainable career? How do you sustain in this career? How do you thrive in this career? And I really just wanted to deliver sort of my own message and things that I personally have found that work, but also things that I have found from other colleagues that have worked that have been in this industry for quite some time. So yeah, absolutely. VTS opens a lot of doors. Yeah, definitely. I'm obviously a VTS in anesthesia and analgesia, um, and it opened doors for me as well. And and I like that you encourage people to find their passion and pursue that. And NAFTA has a list of all the academies on their website, which is a great resource if someone's interested in a particular area of interest. What really resonated from what you just said to me was that you could appreciate your personal slash professional dynamic change from, like you said, when you got started in the career, which was really pet focus, and now a focus on the team to optimize the pet experience and that animal, human-animal bond. So what I gathered from what you said is that understanding your own personal growth and change was really a value as well to your professional career. And yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, when they get into this industry, again, your focus is just trying to get that catheter in, trying to deal with the clients, trying to manage the anesthesia. And, and you're tunnel visioned into this one goal and this one passion that you went into this industry for. But the longer that you're in it, you get to see a broader range of really what this entire profession is. And it's about the team and it's about the people that you work with. And it is about the clients too. And things that I never had imagined thinking about when I was in school have become a larger picture for me as I've been in this career 
year longer. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit of your insight into the value of working for a large corporation or a corporate employer rather in the veterinary world and how that's really shaped your transition from clinical practice, you know, being a technician per se in the trenches to being more team oriented and leadership focused. Yeah, absolutely. So I started off with a one doctor, privately owned, teeny tiny little GP practice in rural Massachusetts um, in the 90s. And there were very few of us working in this hospital. Again, it was only one doctor. And then I found myself, obviously, at some point with Blue Pearl, which is owned by Mars, and it doesn't get any bigger than that. So I've run the gamut of teeny tiny to literally the largest. And I think You know, having seen the broad range of colors and spectrums of veterinary hospitals out there, everything from privately owned specialty practices to um, privately owned, obviously, general practices to larger multi-doctor owned specialty hospitals to then company, one company owned to then obviously being owned by Mars, um, I can say safely that there are, you know, both good and bad on both things. But I think that it's also very much hospital dependent. I think in, you know, people say corporate as if it's like a super dirty word, but there are things that the company, like a big company can give to you that smaller employers can't. One of the big things is opportunities. If you're really looking to expand your wings, if you're in a small privately owned hospital, maybe you can move up to supervisor or manager, but that's where the buck stops. Maybe you get to be hospital administrator, you know, that's where it ends. In a company that has multiple hospitals, Really, from there, there's regional or area leaders. And then from area leaders, maybe regional or national. And then from there, you've got senior leadership teams or executive councils or things like that. And then even in a company such as Mars, there is even obviously larger than that because there's like a Mars veterinary health group above Blue Pearl. And so really, there's a tremendous amount of growth that any one individual can do within a company. And it broadens your horizons if you're interested in that type of thing. I think the other thing that I always find is such a, a positive for the most part is that in when I've worked in small privately owned hospitals, sometimes leadership is the problem. Sometimes the owner has leadership issues. Sometimes they're the cause of why perhaps the hospital's not thriving. Perhaps financially they're struggling, whatever it is. There is that person in the hospital who's overseeing the hospital that the team is struggling with. And as someone who's working on the team, you can certainly go to, say, your veterinarian manager or your technician manager, your front desk manager, and maybe they can try to have a conversation with the owner or the practice manager, but that's where it ends. And so, unfortunately, unless there's emotional intelligence of the leadership within that hospital to say, we have to do a deep dive into ourselves and we need to do a deep dive into how we're running and managing this business, a lot of toxic workplace environments don't change for that reason because that's where it ends. However, when you're working for a large company and you voice your opinion and it's not heard, you can go above that person. You can go to the area leader. You can go to the regional manager. Um, And if enough individuals in the hospital say, hey, we're really concerned, this is where, you know, we're struggling, 
generally I find, and I know there's some who are listening say, but not always, you're right. <laughs> but generally uh, your voice is heard. At least there is an avenue for you to voice your opinion and concerns and hopefully get some something accomplished uh, that you are struggling with, as opposed to in a smaller hospital, kind of the buck stops there and there's nobody else. So uh, pros and cons in everyone, but I think that there's great hospitals and bad hospitals in both private and corporate is what I found. But those are definitely two benefits I found working in a larger hospital setting. That's definitely a valuable perspective to have. If you were going to give a piece of advice to someone looking to make a move or, or at starting out at an entry level style position and they have big plans to move up and become a supervisor, maybe a regional leader, uh, technical leader, what would you suggest they do to expedite that process and gain the experience and foundation to excel at those higher level positions? Um, yeah, that's a, it's an excellent question because actually people do reach out to me and say, how do I get into a management or supervisor role? What does that look like? And so for some people, there is such a role that exists within your current hospital. But if there's not a role that exists in such a current hospital and you believe one to actually be needed, then there are plenty of times where I know individuals who've literally created their own leadership role because they have said to the current hospital leader, here's where I think we're, we're struggling on an organizational level. Um, you are trying to manage 30 to 40 veterinary technicians and assistants. And I think we need to put in some supervisors and managers. So certainly if it's a hospital that's struggling to have leaders in the hospital, this is one way of kind of doing a sales pitch to get those leaders in. As far as the individual itself, I always think, you know, I wrote the book, Oops, I Became a Manager, because it's so true. And I used to joke at conferences when I would lecture on leadership. I used to literally say, if I ever am going to write a book, it's going to be titled, Oops, I Became a Manager. And everyone would laugh because it's so freaking relatable. It literally, people get dumped into these leadership roles without any sort of training or knowledge of how to do so. And just because you can slam in an arterial catheter in a central line, it doesn't necessarily make you the best leader. So if you find that you're interested in going into management or supervising, it's not something that you just innately are born with. There are some traits and some skills that you are innately born with. Um, hopefully, compassion and empathy is one of those. But are you a good listener? Do you have the ability to take criticism? Are you able to delegate? Yes, leaders need to delegate. And so I always like leaders just gaining some emotional intelligence about themselves and then picking apart what you think are traits that you need to improve upon within your own daily life that are going to make you a more effective leader for when you get into that leadership role. And there's plenty of free courses online. It's not like you have to go and pay for super expensive courses because there's plenty of great leadership courses that are free online, but there's also a lot of wonderful books to read. And I think that's what makes the best leader is when they're truly honing in their own actual leadership skills. Instead of worrying about, can I do the central line in under five minutes? Am I the fastest one to place it? Or versus, do I have the ability to develop people in their career path? And so that's what it really means to be a leader. It's not about just setting the schedule or doing annual reviews or handing out raises. It's really about honing in your own skills and your own ability to interact with other people in terms of developing out your actual leadership skills. 
Well, I think you just answered my next question, but I want to recapture because I do see personally that people who excel at technical skills often get promoted to leadership roles, which are not always the skills that a good leader, like you mentioned, need. They need to be able to recognize values in in all of their team. So given, oops, I became a leader, you've written this book. I want you to share where people can find that book to review it and read it. So that's the first part. But then I want you to really just recapture the top three things you look for in hiring a team member. So you can find my book on Amazon and it is uh, worldwide. So if you're listening to this in Australia or New Zealand, I know Amazon Australia just recently got it on their Amazon website like six months ago. So yes, you can just buy it through Amazon And thank you very much for letting me mention that. (laughs) As far as the three things that I would look for when hiring a veterinary technician, it's funny because when I oopsied myself into my first leadership role, I didn't know what I was doing. They literally, they just kept adding more to my plate. Like, would you like to do inventory? And I said, sure, that sounds great. Uh, Would you like to do the schedule? Oh yeah, absolutely. That sounds awesome too. Would you like to interview this person? Yeah, I have no idea how to do that, but let's go ahead and do that. Let's, I'll just make stuff up. And so, um, how I, the traits I would have looked for in my much younger 20 something year ago management personality is much different than what I look for now. For now, you know, yes, I am interested in how well they can perform as a veterinary technician. So that's always at the top of the, the list. What are their skill set? Are they advanced? Can they manage through doing anesthesia, dental profies, radiology? Do they have those skills? I mean, hands down, that's always going to be the first thing. But then I start to look for, are they a team player? And some of the sneaky ways I go about doing that is I start asking them about what their other job was like or why they're leaving their other job. And if I hear a lot of gossiping, if I hear a lot of like, oh, my manager this, and they just are like an open book, those are sort of like the concerns that tells me that maybe this person may or may not have a gossip problem they may or may not have tried to work with their leader in their current hospital, or maybe they did, but they're so willing to share. I wonder what they're going to do when they get into this team and what else they're going to share or what else they're going to say. And so that's one thing that I look for. And then the other thing that interesting that I never used to ask for, but I definitely do now, is I look to see how they take care of themselves. And so making sure that you actually have a career in a, as a veterinary technician means that you have the ability to take care of oneself because it is a high rate of burnout. And so I now look actually to see what sort of fun things do they like to do. And certainly you can do it in a million different ways, but I say, tell it to me, what do you like to do for fun? If they go, oh, I don't really have any fun. Oh, my life is so stressful. I do get concerned about whether or not they're going to continue to be happy here. Are they going to burn out within the first couple months? What does this look like? Um, And so I want to make sure that I'm hiring on someone who's going to be a great fit for the team and for the culture that we currently have. I want someone who's excited, thrilled, still has the passion for veterinary medicine, but also who has ways to diffuse some of this burnout. And it's not to say that if they say, oh my goodness, well, I don't do anything because my current job is stressing me out. It's not to say I don't hire them, but 
I definitely would be concerned and try to figure out, okay, how am I going to help manage this person's stress? Because they, they don't have outlets. They don't know how to make this a sustainable career. So it's interesting because those are the things I look for now as an interview, certainly skills. But then overall, how are they going to fit into the culture of this hospital and what does that look like? Those are kind of the big things I now look for. <laughs> Along the lines of extracurricular activities. You have a lot of career experience or opportunities outside of your direct employer. I'm really interested in your service with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the National Veterinary Response Team. I'd like you to share just a little bit with our listeners what that involves and how people could find opportunities to become involved either in that or something similar. So it kind of fits along my same love of emergency medicine. I read an article in a AVMA journal about this veterinary response team that went out to Hurricane Andrew, and this was in the 90s. And it was talking about how they had set up a temporary shelter and was providing medical care and how they were interested in having more people actually join. And I thought, wow, this sounds exciting. And obviously gravitating to emergency medicine, this would fit right in my wheelhouse. So I applied and it is part of the federal government. So it falls under health and human services. It's part of the public health emergency system. Um, it's actually part of the national disaster medical system. So if you Google NDMS, or just type in National Disaster Medical System, you will come up with the forward-facing page of the United States government and these teams. And so the teams have human medical counterparts. They're known as DMATS. That's the Disaster Medical Assistance Team. And then, unfortunately, the other team that is very well known is the DMORTS. So that is the mortuary team component of it. So, for example, during the building collapse down in Florida this past year, the DMORTS played a large role in body recovery identification and getting the loved ones the information that they need. So it is a huge undertaking, obviously, for that group. And then they have some specialized teams, which are really interesting as well. They have like dialysis teams that go out. And so these federal teams are deployed whenever the local response can't meet the demands of whatever is occurring. And it's interesting that to note that even in um, things that don't seem like a disaster, for example, the 4th of July celebration in Washington, D.C., teams will get called out for that because that's a huge scaled event. And we can't expect the Washington police officers to take care of the hundreds of canine units, the hundreds of mounted police that come in from all over to deal with just the 4th of July celebration. So teams get called in for those things as well. Um, when the Olympics happened in the U.S., that was another time that the teams were called out as well. So just trying to help the local response when it becomes overwhelmed. So my very first deployment was 9-11, which, you know, it's one of those moments that will change you forever. And uh, I'm eternally grateful for the experience. And it just puts life in perspective in one quick flat moment. So um, I'm very proud of what the teamwork did, even though obviously uh, most of the search and rescue dogs that were deployed there never found any individual member alive. That was super sad. But since then, we've been deployed to hurricanes and obviously Fourth of July celebrations celebrations, Olympics, presidential inaugurations, things like that. So it is very rewarding. You do get paid by the federal government. So my taxpayers and your taxpayers go out to pay for these team salaries, which is really nice. And you also do get health insurance and you're also covered under USERA. So your employer does need to allow you to go because you're covered under the same guidelines as someone in the military who's getting deployed. So you deploy anywhere from two to three weeks. 
And it's an amazing team to be part of. It's an amazing experience to be part of. Uh, you do have to have the ability to up and leave and short notice, just drop everything you're doing and run out the door when you're called. Uh, you don't have to go, but obviously we want people on the team to go. If you're interested in applying, if you go to, I think it's usjobs.gov, they do have applications for these positions on the various teams, so you can always check it out. And I think if you go to the disaster um, management systems website, you'll actually see a link for the jobs page as well. So That's really interesting and a perspective that not many veterinary technicians hear a lot about. So that's what these podcasts are all about, is to expand our horizons. I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us sharing your expertise. Uh, and so for that, we are very grateful for your contributions to the veterinary industry and your, your time. Thank you.